Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Sherlock's Success Stories. In each fortnightly episode, we delve into the stories behind some of the most successful entrepreneurs and careers we've seen. In this week's inaugural episode, we're joined by Tamara Lorne, founder and CTO of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Launched in 2003 as a hotel guidebook, after she and her husband James had a disastrous mini break in the Lake District, 15 years on, and it has evolved into a prestigious hotel bookings website, employing over 120 people. Along the way, the couple have picked up two MBEs, had two children, and managed a harmonious personal and working relationship as husband and wife. A huge welcome, Tamara. Thank you for having me. Maybe we'll come back to that relationship. The harmonious bit, yes. The harmonious bit. <laughs> so tell us about your background before you started Mr and Mrs Smith. How far back do you want me to go? I mean... <laughs> well, uni and then okay. you went to Oxford or Cambridge? I went to Oxford, yes. And I came out really not knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew that I wanted to travel, but I didn't see a career in travel at all because in those days, you know, you weren't uh, encouraged to be entrepreneurial at all. You know, coming out of Oxford, it was all about going into the city and making as much money as you could with the big um, consultancies or finance firms. And um, so I jumped at an opportunity straight out of university to go to Brazil to help launch an energy drink. And um, it all went a bit disastrously wrong. We were there for uh, almost a year. Uh, the company had been granted um, 80 million by investors, sorry, 20 million by investors to launch this energy drink, which was a rival to Red Bull, which was going great gangbusters in those days. So that was the era of the energy drink. It was being drunk in, you know, all, in all the clubs. Vodka Red Bull was the kind of drink of choice. And, um, and we had uh, an energy drink to rival it, but that actually tasted good. So it was a great product. And Brazil is one of the largest energy drink consumption countries in the world. They drink a lot of uh, Guarana, which is the natural jungle herb. Or... So it was a big market. And I went out there with a boss and we did everything. I had to go to all the nightclubs to go and see you know, where we should distribute it. I had to interview lots of glamorous girls and guys to be kind of the face of the brand and get, and get tastings out there. Um, we employed, I think it was Grey Advertising, to do all our billboards and banners. And and the coup was um, getting a contract with Schweppes for distribution. And that essentially gave us instant distribution around the country. But what happened was um, at kind of month nine, we were about to launch and uh, the money ran out. And the two guys who had started the company had essentially embezzled all 20 million no. over the course of a year. And um, so, you know, the whole thing was shut down. And I came back to the UK with my kind of tail between my legs. Even though I was, it's weird, isn't it? Because even though it wasn't, I couldn't have done anything about it and it wasn't my fault, it was a real blow to my confidence, I think. Mm. And um, anyway, I decided to come back and to the UK. what happened to them? Um, I think one ended up in jail. I don't know, to, to be honest. Because in those days, you couldn't kind of keep in touch with people. There was no email, there was no uh, social media. So, you know, I came back, there was no, I mean, it, it took us a month to realize that things had gone wrong in Brazil because we were, we were communicating with the office back in London via fax. <laughs> and it took us a month when we realized suddenly we hadn't been paid and gray advertising said, look, we have 
haven't been paid, we're not releasing the billboards. And so, the, you know, those signs told us that something was wrong. Yeah. So back to the UK, and what did you do next? Um, so I went more of a classical route <laughs> and uh, started working for Honda, the, man the car manufacturer, in marketing. Um, in fact, I was in charge of ordering all the cars, and uh, that was done in those days via a series of spreadsheets joined up by macros. It, it did get quite complex. So it was very much the data side of marketing and linking up all the factories. They've had three factories, one in Japan, uh, one in Swindon, and one in the US. And we had to you know, produce a marketing and sales plan and then order the appropriate number of cars for, for that. I remember getting it quite wrong one year and you know, over-ordering on a very special bright yellow car. <laughs> <laughs> Which we ended up, yeah. We, I think we ended up selling two. <laughs> um, so then, and then I went to agency side, and um, I was working for for the agency for very large clients. And this was in the days where building databases was really critical. So, uh, and a CRM was the, the big buzzword. And people realised that if you have the data, you have the knowledge, and you can, especially in the motor industry, if you How have the you customer data. Have the data. I mean, it does just. It made your kind of mind spin, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think everyone's just in the dark for it's so long. So long. Um, but people like uh, Ford and Honda realise that if, if you have customer data and you have, you have knowledge of that at that customer base, you can start to predict when they're in market for a car. And at that point, you kind of send them communications to drive them into the dealership to take a, a test drive. So very, you know, very basic but sound kind of marketing, data marketing principles. So from Honda to agency side, yes, and then um, I realised that I didn't want to work for anybody anymore, and I was very lucky in that my mother, who has been an entrepreneur pretty much all her life, oh, um, really? had a business, and so she said, "Come and join me in the business." What was her business? She ran a dating agency. Did she? Yeah. Love it. <laughs> very offline, uh, very personal, one-on-one. -on -one. So I mean, I was very lucky. So I, I went and ran that for a while, and that just gave me the breathing space um, because I, I wasn't sure what to do. And that's when the kind of idea for Mr. and Mrs. Smith came about. I was dating, and we were going travelling, and, and so this you, weekend happened. This, this weekend that I think is in every article that's ever been written about you, yes. this fit is probably completely fictional, but you're stuck with it now. <laughs> did it, it, did no, it really, really happen? Did happen. So, so you were dating your husband, James, at yes. this point. Yes, and he was essentially getting it very wrong when choosing the hotels. Because, I mean, I don't know, you're probably not old enough to remember, but you, know, you used to look through magazine articles or ask your friends where to go. You would then ring the hotel who would send you a brochure through the post. You would look at the brochure, and if you liked the look of the brochure, then you would call them back and make the reservation. That's how it used to work. And so we would get all these brochures through the post. But, I mean, it wasn't all my husband's fault, but <laughs> we ended up in just one too many awful hotels. And I think we were going through a period of time in the UK where these fusty country house hotels were not keeping up. And they were more like, you know, OAP homes than... And did, did good ones exist then? Was it just yes. a case that people didn't know about them? Or has the market just changed? I mean, my parents would say, oh, we never had the restaurants and the hotels and the options like you have. You mm. know, the world's changed in that sense. Were they out there? It was just people didn't know about them? They were out there, but they were few and far between, and they had no voice. And, and that's where we came in. So, you know, they were, they were a handful. And I remember the original concept for the book was we wanted 52 hotels, one for every weekend of the year. And when we travelled the whole length and breadth of the country, we found 41. And at one point we sat there and went, oh, we don't have a concept. And then suddenly we realised that actually that was the whole concept. The, the fact that there, if there were only 41, 
then there were only 41 and we weren't going to compromise on quality or style. Everyone had to be strong and stand up for itself. And that so, was the difference. So you had this weekend in the Lake District um, and were you sitting there over supper going, we can do this or was yes. it afterwards? Or so it was basically, we'd ended up at this dreadful, dreadful place. And of course, because, you know, the guidebook hadn't said anything, we hadn't booked a restaurant and we wanted to throw money at the problem to kind of get us out of this very depressing hotel. But of course, all the best restaurants in town were booked already. So we ended up at some equivalent of Pizza Express over a tea light going, and I had a palm pilot, that dates it for you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we sat there and literally wrote out what we would want from a guidebook and the kind of hotels that we wanted to find. Um, and, you know, we knew that there were a couple out there, you know, Babington House had started, there was Trezanton in Cornwall, mm. there were a couple of gems that people knew about, but these places were always full, you know, you had to book a year in advance, and so we said there must be other places out there, and so that's, that's what we set out to do. That's where it came from. So you decided to write a book. And how daunting a process was that, writing a book? Is that a classic entrepreneurial thing, you kind of go, how difficult can it be? Mm. If you, what you don't know is often your kind of ally. And James had been a DJ, and he had this nomadic club night that used to, once a month, go to different venues around London. But because he didn't have a lot of money, the venues weren't always the best venues. And he knew that to get people into this not-so-glamorous venue, even if it was going to be glamorous inside and you know, a wonderful party night, he had to market it well. And so he would pour over the flyers with a designer. And he used to spend so much time making them very beautiful and glamorous and kind of evoking what the night would be. And so he turned around to me when we decided to do the book and said, I mean, how hard can it be? You know, it's just 300 flyers stuck together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so you kind of learn and, you you know, you do make mistakes, I'm and sure. Did, did you write it yourselves? We used writers. Okay. Um, so, yes, it was very much, you know, use the best in class. To design the book, we actually, we didn't want people, people in publishing essentially said to us, you're crazy. They said, you can't send a photographer to every hotel, which is what we wanted to do. And you went to every hotel, presumably, we yourself. yourselves. So we'd already invested that kind of time and effort. Uh, but they said, you can't uh, print, the, the, the original books were on offset paper, so they weren't gloss. Everybody said, well, luxury is gloss. And they didn't get it. They said, you can't stick a membership card in the front because people will rip them out in the shops. We were like, really? Uh, you can't send a photographer around, you know, you'll blow the budget, you'll never make any money. And we just heard no, no, no. Before I started Shared Arts, I worked um, in property marketing. And I remember one of the designers there, he to this day, I, I really, really rate. And I remember him being completely obsessed with your brand and your book. Oh. And he just loved the fact that you were on an uncoated stock paper. I can't take credit for that at all. That was him very much. You know, he wanted that organic feel. Um, and, you know, if you look through the first book as well, the colour palette is amazing. He has this eye for colour. And it's almost like it sort of had that Instagram filter, isn't it? It's sort of valencia throughout. Yeah. It, it, it's just that consistency with all the... It was the consistency of the photography, which is what we wanted. We wanted people to... You know, these are all very different, unique properties, but we wanted to get that feel of that sexy that they all, weekend. Away, yeah, and that they, they all, all become belong to this club. It's yes. kind of how you... How it, yeah, how it felt. And, and you mentioned the sort of sexy feel. I mean, you think of the brand, and it is it has a sexy feel, doesn't it? And I think that's something you've played on. Um, especially with some of your Christmas campaigns in the last, I don't yeah, know, how many yeah. years. I was going to say, Phoebe, it's probably, uh, yeah. probably quite a while ago now. Was that a conscious thing to create this sexy brand? I think definitely, yes. I think we were the first to recognise that people don't go away to hotels with loved ones to play Scrabble. <laughs> um, and Mr and Mrs Smith, because I know a lot of your listeners will be way too young, um, but it is a throwback to uh, an era just after the war when people started going to hotels again and having a little bit of money and dating again. 
but it was still frowned upon to be with someone outside of wedlock, even if you're planning on marrying them. So I'm not talking about affairs necessarily, it was just, you know, you, you just didn't do that before you were married. And so Mr. and Mrs. Smith was the kind of naughty pseudonym that you would write in the guest book if you didn't want people to know you know, that you were there with someone perhaps you shouldn't be. <laughs> so it was a very much, it was, we were so it was bored an of thing. all the other bland, luxury guidebook this, small luxury that, you know, it was just, it was all, it all felt so bland and we wanted to kind of throw it out. And even that the first book, I remember we were the first not to put a beach or a bed on the front cover. It was a door where you could just see behind. It was Blake's, it was shot at. And on the back there was the peephole. So yeah, so everything we try and do, we try and do with that kind of mischievous tone of voice. And it was, I mean, it was the book, you know, for people that are listening that are a bit younger. I mean, I remember giving it to my stepbrother, who's, I think he's six or seven years older than me. And, and I remember thinking, he'll really love this. And, he'll, and I remember him opening it and, and really loving it. And it was just, it was just a, it was a movement, really, I think, in travel, wasn't it? It was. And, you know, we, I'm sure we helped that movement. The movement was already happening. It was this wave of, you know, people demanding more, especially Londoners from their weekends away. They just wanted something that was great and stylish. And, you know, we were, it was a time when we were actually redesigning our homes. So the time of Conran, Heels, Habitat, and Ikea had that amazing advert, chuck out your chintz. I don't know if you remember that advert. It's quite iconic but they had a skip arrive in the middle of a street and all these women were literally throwing out their you know, <laughs> chintzy doilies and curtains and things into it. Um, so we were doing that in our homes, but the hotels hadn't yeah. kept up. It was that era, wasn't it, of I want everything to be nice and I'm working hard and I want nice things. And I always refer to my parents, but I remember... Um, when my husband and I moved into our first flat together, and we kind of wanted everything new. Mm -hmm. And I think my mum offered me like some old kitchen table, and I was like, no, you can keep the kitchen table, thanks very much. <laughs> I want a new one. She's like, I mean, you lot, you're so grand. We were just grateful to have well, anything. anything we could be yeah, given, but, yeah, you know, it was, it was just a, a real... It was, it was a design revolution. Mm -hmm. It really was. And, you know, so the hotels were, were starting to happen and, and see that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we took advantage of that, yeah. obviously, and, and helped create that noise, especially here in London. And so you launched the book in 2003, mm -hmm. and it was a huge success. Yeah. How were you making money at that point? So at that, for, t for the first two years, our revenues came purely from book sales. So books sold primarily through Waterstones, um, but also, you know, we wanted to be seen as a lifestyle product, not just on the travel bookshelves. So we sold through Conran, and it was that different way of thinking, you know, we, we really wanted to go against the old school way of thinking of publishing mm -hmm. and not be pigeonholed. Uh, and, you know, the connections that we made in the press in, to tell our story and to tell the story of all the amazing hotels that were in the book were the lifestyle and the fashion press rather than just the, the travel press. Um, so, yes, and then it wasn't until in 2005 things changed and the internet was starting to become... For in, in the travel industry, it was starting to become somewhere you would trust with your credit card. And that was driven by the big brands, British Airways. As a consumer, you would think, okay, British Airways as a brand will, will be sticking, treat my card details securely. Um, and at that point, the kind of floodgates opened. And so we were lucky. We, we, we recognized it and, and changed the business model. And in 2005, September, we uh, launched the Bookable website. And did you take all your content from the book and put it onto the site? And did that cannibalize your book sales? Or It didn't really. I mean, you know, that the first book still went on to sell a lot. I mean, the, the publishing industry has evolved and that traditional travel guidebook it's right that it should have died because the minute you print a guidebook, it's out of date. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I love about the publishing industry is that slowly it is catching up and what you're seeing are these 
beautiful books now you know and that tangible something to you know have in your hands that's that's you know that's really special and um, so the website was a bookings website yes so we put the, the hotels on the site we integrated a third-party booking system uh, because at that stage I was you know I didn't know what I was doing and um, uh, and yeah allowed people to to book and did that happen quite organically Yes, I mean, it was a slow start. I remember that September we did 10 bookings and, you know, that was just joyous. It was like, wow, people will actually book through us and trust us with their booking. Um, it was quite, it was, it was so exciting. It really was. And would you say that today, 2018, you're very much still... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Built a hotel bookings website. So how have you evolved since 2005? Mm. What's changed? Other than obviously your awareness and, and the volume of customers and transactions. Yeah, I think, I think what customers need from us has changed enormously. So when we started, our role was really to find those incredible places because they didn't have a voice. Nobody knew where to find them. So we were out there to go and, and you know, find them for, for the customers. Um, then it's, it changed and we found lots of people, especially leaving London, going and buying a property in the countryside, sticking far and ball on the walls, putting some apples in a glass jar in reception and calling themselves a boutique hotel. Um, and so we were there to kind of sort the wheat from the chaff. Mm. And now, it, you know, people's needs have changed again, you know, because the hotels, you can find the hotels on other websites. Um, there's the 10 ton gorilla in the room, which is bookings.com, mm. which has every, pretty much every hotel on the planet. Um, and so our role has changed. And I really see us as a travel club now for people who love these kind of hotels um, and, and experiences. And that's where we're heading now. Everybody has kind of moved on from just the pure hotel and going, right, what am I going to get out of my holiday now? What are the experiences that I want to have? And hotel is a very important part of that, uh, but it's more than just that. So what are you giving somebody today that they're not getting on booking.com? So we do a lot more. So we can book um, flights, trains, automobiles, um, and we are heading more into experiences and packages. Presumably you can book that pub down the road, you can book that trip that they're not going to get from... Yes, from the booking.coms of this world. Exactly. And all the advice. And we, you know, we're we're trying to differentiate ourselves from booking.com as much as possible. We don't want to go into battle with them. We want to be very much the niche player for a set of customers who really want to be part of this travel club, who trust us with the curation. The curation is always at the heart of what we do. We've got to recommend the right place.
choices because otherwise we break that customer trust mm -hmm. just like you Georgie in your business if you recommend something that is not of good quality you break the the trust that you have with your consumers and you've built up such Absolutely. an amazing following um, but that's really important and so the same with us and then you go into customer service because when you're dealing with somebody's holiday you're dealing with their precious time off and you have to treat that you know with utmost caution and make sure you're highly professional and you know that your customers are getting absolutely the most out of yeah there's so much at risk when you go on holiday yeah you're so right cutting corners is just not the way to go it's yeah. only gonna end in disappointment so our service it? teams have a mantra um, that is leave nothing to chance and our concierge team's mantra is go above and beyond and back again and that's what we always strive to do for customers and we're always there and you know we're not a hundred percent perfect nobody is and um, I hope that you know the fact that we're there when things go wrong as well counts for a lot as well. Do you consult for up and coming new hotels? Uh, not so much hotels. Um, I'm involved uh, in the Travel Tech Lab, which is at the Trampery. Uh, it's like a shared office uh, space. And that's really interesting because I see all the young entrepreneurs coming through in the travel technology space. And hopefully I can help them as well. So yeah, I like to, I like to get involved with new stuff that's coming through and give advice where I can. You know, I like to be able to help. I feel like if I was launching though the next the next pig brand, I'd want Mr. and Mrs. Smith consulting for me and telling me exactly oh. what I should be doing. Well, we have to be very careful that we don't say, well, that if we impartial. consult with you, yeah. Yeah, we're impartial, that you know, it's not guaranteed that you come in. But we do help hotels. You know, we really see the hotels as our partners. Mm. And so if we can help them get better, then we're helping them get better for our customers. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. So like not on the high street. I, I know they, they help their sellers. Yes. You know, it's a marketplace and they help their sellers yes. and they, you know, help them get up to sort of yes, best do. practice and, and make sure they're ticking the right bo boxes and, and not making kind of rookie mistakes. They so. really do. You know, they've obviously they've put so much effort into really helping small businesses out. Mm. I'm on the board of Not on the High Street. Oh, are you? And um, they really care about uh, those small businesses. Mm. So yeah, it's a fabulous company. And how does a business make money today so book sales do they still play a part we stopped uh, publishing books two or three years ago Thank our last you. one was Italy um, and we are working on another one good I was hoping you were going to say you know the publishing world it's sort of it's come back hasn't yeah, it, it has, you know yeah. it, and the, in a great way this, yeah in such a great in a different way mm -hmm. and cool, well, I, can you tell us more what would it be it's a secret but I promise you I'll tell you before anyone okay good <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that tomorrow um, so going back to how you make money mm. So it's through your bookings. Off the bookings, yeah. What in all the years that you've been doing this, of which you know, what fifteen now? Fifteen years. What surprised you the most? What's been the most exciting? What's been really pivotal for the business? What would you pick out as kind of discussion-worthy points? I suppose. I think um, one of the most pivotal was uh, definitely going into the customer service route. So to start with, we didn't offer. I think that keeping the human element in any business is really critical, um, and uh, you know, I. Still still think that people want to speak to a human when things go wrong, when they have lots of questions. And um, and so what's been amazing is that we have this you know, offline team that work with the online team to just make everything uh, perfect for the customer and speaking to customers as well. So I, I, I get on the phones quite regularly or sit on our chat function and chat to um, customers. They don't know it's me. <laughs> they see me like I'm just in a, you know, one of the agents, one of the travel team people. Um, but I love it because it it's, it's so real and you're dealing with people's real holidays mm. and that's just so exciting. So the customer service element, it's, what it's else? That it's that marriage of the technical and the human that gets me really excited. And I think if you have a company that has both, then kind of magic happens. And on that point of the technical, your role is 
CTO. CTO. As a woman, are you alone up there? Uh, no, my, uh, so I have two main people who report into me, um, the head of development and the product director, and uh, that's a 50-50 female-male split. Oh. Um, you know, some of the engineers are heavy male, but I try and keep a quite a balanced team as much as I can. And um, I just, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a funny thing, the female-male, I'm, I'm so lucky, I'm in a business that you know, I run and we're very female friendly. I think the travel industry is also quite female friendly as an industry generally, mm. um, as I'm sure yours is. Um, and so I try and make sure that the business is as flexible as, as possible for women and their needs. And I'm interested as a mother um, mm. with two children of, what are they, early 11 and teens, eight. Well, nearly 11 okay. and 8. Is technology something you're really encouraging them? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Yes. Um, and God, this could be a whole other podcast. Mm. But, you know, as a mother, I, I really feel the need for them to learn this language. Yes. Um, but I'm so aware equally that I think it was Steve Jobs who banned his children from having an iPad or a phone or anything yeah. else until whatever age. Where do you stand on that with your children being a CTO? Yeah, so what I do with them is try and encourage them to kind of make things. It's the, the making and putting together of things that I think is important. And I think we've lost that with, you know, with our phones. When we used to have technology, I remember having a ZX Spectrum and you could take it to pieces and put it back together again. You would never let your children you? do that. Maybe, maybe you could tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone. But I think, you know, it was kind of, it was quite basic technology. If you opened it, there wasn't much there. And I think what the Raspberry Pi is doing is going back to that look this is not difficult and you can build up from that and there are so many great kids maker kits now and that's what I try and encourage my kids to do rather than just sit on apps on their mm. iPads so robot making kits I met a guy who's got a, a, a lovely business called Marty the robot and he's really trying to and the, and the robot comes with uh, decals or stickers, which are so you can make it into a female or a male. And and he's really trying to get kids to experiment with making something and then coding it to move. So obviously, you know, key robotics. Oh. And that's, um, I also know um, the founder of Te uh, Technology Will Save Us, Bethany Kobe. She runs a fabulous business. And her little kits, everything from a very basic Play-Doh where you plug in the electrodes and make things light up, very good for younger kids. Just to start Ooh, experimenting with technology and actually making stuff. So I think that's really important. Oh, well, great advice. Let's talk about your husband's role. Well, he's chairman right. and he's creative director. Right. So, yes, I kind of make it all work and he says it should be yellow or blue. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm really, he would probably kill me for saying that. We can scrub that bit out. No, I'm checking. We're definitely not scrubbing that bit out. That'll be fine. So you're not really taking the stereotypical no. roles. It's a bit of a flip. Is it like it that is, at home it as is, well? Yeah, he chooses the wallpaper and I make the TV work. Love it. Brilliant. And how is it running a business with your husband? We've written a few features on this, and it's something that I think is a really interesting thing. You know, can it work? I mean, it obviously can for some people. Yeah. What are the rules? How have you made it work? Um, it, I said you managed it harmoniously. Yes, is that the case? Yeah, and what do you do is. when it's not harmonious? So, you know, it's... Nothing is ever easy. You, you have to work at everything. So I can't sit here and say, you know, it's been fantastic all 15 years. And, you know, we've had our times where the business has kind of just taken over so much that we, you know, lost our way and, and needed to reconnect and go, actually, you know, our relationship is important. And But on the whole, I have to say, I love working with him. And I think it works for us because we do very different things. And so there's a huge amount of respect. You know, I couldn't do what he does, and he probably would say the same about me. And so I really respect what he does. And you know, I, I'm, I feel very privileged that I get to see him do what he does best. 
and that's kind of sexy as well, you know, to, yeah. kind of, to, to see your husband, especially in board meetings or something where, you know, he's doing his stuff. And Does he have the last word? Not always, no. I think we're very, we're very collaborative. You know, we, we pull our punches, so we, we definitely, we discuss, and we can discuss quite strongly. Um, but would you do that in front of your yeah, yeah, occasionally um, yeah and then until people get used to the fact that we're in there people feel uncomfortable and then they realize well <laughs> then you, you start know. throwing things and they're yeah. like right we're really leaving <laughs> <laughs> I go over to his desk and steal food and they all laugh <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean they get used to that relationship um, but I think everybody realizes that we both want what's best for the business when we're at work do you have the same vision and the same exactly. goal so, and that's what's key and we're all pulling together and we're a team uh, and that's the most important thing. And this kind of interview wouldn't be this kind of interview without asking you about your family life. People are always interested to hear yeah. how, how individuals make it work, how successful people yeah. are, are juggling it. Um, are yours the obvious things like lots of help and um, yeah. family time when you can? And Yeah, I mean, I think it's those kind of questions. Anybody who says to you that they manage perfectly all of the time are lying. You know, I always feel... Um, like, you know, that kind of bird on the water paddling madly underneath, <laughs> whereas everything is kind of calm on top. <laughs> but you're always juggling. You know, you have to make calls, and sometimes you regret some of those calls, um, like when you agree to do some piece of work on a Saturday. You make those calls, and you have to live with them. And so, you know, I, I never let anybody down, and um, I try and spend as much time as I can with the children so that they feel that I'm mummy and not somebody who's always at work. And sometimes that it's a good call, and sometimes it's not such a good call, you know? You just juggle. And as you've had children and they've got older, mm. have your ambitions changed? Um, I, think, I think the ambition for the business is still big. Um, my ambitions for them, you know, because I'm quite... I've got so much energy and drive. Sometimes I have to kind of take a step back and do things at their pace because they're not quite ready to talk about going to Oxford University or starting their own business. And on the subject of family, you launched Smith and Family in three years ago. Yes. 2014, Something 15. Like that, yeah. How's that gone? Do you know what? It's been great because um, I can see families just going, thank God there's, you know, there's a list of places that I know are going to be great. What's been hard on our side is that there are not as many properties as we would like. And um, so the properties that we do work with get very, very busy and booked up way in advance. Yeah, at all the, at all the key times. Yeah, I, mean, I think I, you know, I was naive. I thought, well, what we've done for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we can now launch Smith and Family, and there'll be this, this amazing collection around the world that just nobody knows about. But it wasn't like that. You know, we went out, and it was really tough to find those really great places. We have three pillars for Smith and Family. It has to be great for the kids, obviously. It has to be great for the grown-ups as well. So I don't want to st sit at a sticky table with smashed fish fingers on the floor and drink a really rubbish bottle of wine at night. And then the third pillar is, is it has to be great for us as a family unit because, you know, I work. So when I go on holiday, I actually want to spend time with my kids and I don't want to sit in some grotty mm -hmm. kids club. I want to actually do stuff yeah. with them. Everyone needs to have a nice time. Exactly. And do you feel the need to constantly evolve Smith and Family came along a few years ago. Mm. What's next? And, and is there that pressure? I certainly feel it. We're a purely digital business. Mm. 
for you? Is that, a, is that something that's on your mind? Yeah, so I think we are inherently as humans driven and because we're a, you know, this consumer society, always driven to do more, to grow. And so I do feel that pressure to do things differently. And you know, your, your customers are asking you for different things as well. So you do need to evolve as a business. Um, that's just the world we live in. And so yes, yeah, so a couple of years ago, we bought a villa company. So villas are a, a, a newish product for us and uh, seeing that expand this year will be really great and it's gone down extremely well. So Villas where? Uh, villas, we, the, we, the company we bought had Villas in Ibiza and Mallorca and we're now expanding that out to Italy and Greece and other, lots of other lovely places. And what brand name is it under? It's just Smith Villas, so it's part of the core website. Um, so that's brilliant and great for families as well. So it's really allowed us to expand what we can give families, because villas are obviously great for families. And um, the other side is experiences and going, as I mentioned before, going beyond just the hotel and asking the customers now, what do you want to do whilst you're there? What do you want to get out of your holiday? What are the kind of experiences that you want to have? Villas, new books, experiences. It sounds like there's a lot on. Always a lot on. So the villa business, which you bought, which you said mm -hmm. recently. Do you have investors in the business? Uh, we do. So we raised uh, funding uh, in 2003. Um, we had a convertible loan note and some investments to do the website. Um, and then in 2014, we raised a consumer bond. So essentially um, crowd funding. And, but we haven't had to raise money since then. And we're profitable now, so we are standing on our own two legs, which is a great feeling. Amazing. Yeah, it's a really great feeling. But your plan is to sell the business ultimately? Well, because we have shareholders, you know, the minute you take on shareholders, there is obviously going to be an exit at some point uh, to realise everybody's um, shareholding. But there's still so much for us to do. And, you know, our growth trajectory is good. Uh, there's so much that's exciting about the business. So who knows when that will be? Well... I, for one, can't wait to see what's ahead and I can't wait to see that new book. Um, I'm going to hold you to that promise to let me know before everyone else. <laughs> uh, Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. I've loved chatting to you and I'm personally a huge Mr and Mrs Smith fan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. That's it for this week. If you have any feedback, then do email podcast at sherlux.com and do please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.